This is Rising Up with Sonali and I'm your host Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. When Tyree Nichols died of injuries sustained at the hands of multiple police officers in Memphis, Tennessee, the video of the vicious assault had many making comparisons to what the nation witnessed in 1991. Attorney Benjamin Crump responded to the video of Nichols's assault saying, quote, Regrettably, it reminded us of the Rodney King video. And unlike Rodney King, Tyree didn't survive. So far, five police officers have been fired and charged with murder. Four out of five of them had prior infractions on their record. During his recent State of the Union address, President Joe Biden, who invited Nichols's parents to join him, said that what was needed was to, quote, give law enforcement the training they need hold them to higher standards, and help them succeed in keeping everyone safe. But that's precisely what has already happened over the decades since King's assault. What should Biden have said? And what will it take to actually end police violence? Joining me to help answer that question is Kat Brooks, APFA host of Law and Disorder and a longtime performer, organizer, and activist. She played a central role in the struggle for justice for Oscar Grant and spent the last decade working with impacted communities and families to rapidly respond to police violence and transform policing and incarceration. She's also the co-founder and executive director of the Anti-Police Terror Project, and she was the runner-up in Oakland's 2018 mayoral election facing incumbent Libby Schaff. Welcome to the program, Kat. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here with you. So first, let's talk about this comparison that many people are making. Um, we, in 1991, saw the brutal beating of Rodney King. It was the direct, uh, you know, the, the fact that his uh, attackers were then acquitted was the spark for the 92 uprising right here in Southern California, where I am based. And we have heard so many promises from leaders and politicians in the decades since. And here we have yet another killing, one of thousands that take place every year at the hands of police. And all we hear from our leaders is more training, more money at police, more, um, you know, kind of extra gear and, and buttressing police up. Are you tired of hearing this? I mean, I've been tired, right? And, and just a couple of things. The explosion we saw in 1992, yes, was a result of the not guilty verdict, but it was because the not guilty verdict compounded all of the rage and trauma, et cetera, because that is what happens in American policing every day in this country and has since its inception. What I've been trying to make uh, the point around in terms of the murder of Tyree Nichols, right? And we can talk specifically about the Scorpion unit. They had at least seven publicized beatings that organizers had been uh, raising the alarm about before Tyree was murdered. Um, this is what pretextual stops in this country look like in every city across the nation, every week of every month of every year. This is not an exception to the rule. This is the rule. And so when we have a situation, especially with with regards to Tyree Nichols, you know, one of the other things that we were told is, well, we need more police of color. We need more black and brown police in Tyree Nichols's case. Um, although there was one white police officer that were fired, the five that have been charged are all black. And there's the, the, the notion of policing being a white supremacist institution or system is one that's rarely heard, right? 
Right. Well, first of all, all cops are blue, right? Once you put on that uniform, that badge and the gun, you have made a decision to join an institution who from its inception, its job has been right to arrest kidnap, kill uh, black folks uh, and indigenous folks and brown folks for that matter uh, in the name of profit, right? That's America's brand of race-based capitalism. And black folks can be agents of white supremacy. White supremacy does not necessarily mean the color of your skin, right? It has to do with what ideological um, paradigms you are pushing forth through your behavior, actions, and choices. Policing in this country is a white supremacist institution. What do you make of what Biden said? He invited Tyree Nichols's parents to the State of the Union address. Um, you know, this is certainly not the kind of thing we would have seen his predecessor doing, but then inviting them to the State of the Union address and then talking about just more training. Is he just giving lip service to, you know, trying to showcase some sort of a verbal commitment, but not actual commitment to justice? Yeah, well, I, I have no doubt that he means what he says about, you know, wanting more training, more diversification. This is the same take we hear over and over and over again. My question is when our leaders from uh, Biden on down are going to actually look at the data, right? Look at the logic, live, look at the lived experience of America's most marginalized and admit that actually the way we do public safety in this country is not working, does not work and will not work. How many more gazillions of dollars are we going to throw away of our money, by the by? We are paying to be raped, murdered, incarcerated, beaten, and killed. How many bazillion more dollars of, uh, of our money are we going to pay to keep doing the same failed thing over and over and over again? You don't have to agree with me about police or policing, but it's really hard to look uh, or to disagree with black and white facts, data, and numbers. Kat, tell me your story. Um, one of the things that people, when, whenever there's the discussion of um, how do we either defund the police or abolish the police, uh, and that that needs to be the ultimate goal. The counter response is, well, you know, how do we live in a world without police? What happens, for example, to victims of domestic violence who might need to call 911 because they're getting beaten up by their partner or husband? Um, you have a personal link to this particular question. Tell me about your background and what has given you the insight into identifying as an abolitionist? Sure. So I'm not only just a survivor of domestic violence, I'm also a survivor of state intervention into that violence, right? One night, my then husband had beaten me pretty severely. He called the police. The police came, um, even though uh, I was the one covered in bruises and, and blood and uh, clearly had been viciously attacked and he was fine. I went to jail. Right. And I went to jail under laws that actually my mother had helped pass in that state, things like um, mandatory arrest laws and primary aggressor laws. And so what happened to me as a result was I never called for help again. And what I know now after being in this work for almost two decades is that that is what is true for women, uh, black and brown uh, women in particular, um, that we just we don't call. Right. And, uh, and wide swaths of the black and brown community don't call because we know that when we dial that number, it's very rarely help that actually comes. What comes is is um, an institution or, or agents of an institution who are trained to sub suppress, <laughs> right, um, control. Um, and, and subjugate as opposed to, to help. And the other thing that folks need to understand, right, the world without police, we're not talking about it. That doesn't mean a world without accountability, 
It means that what we're doing right now actually doesn't create safety for anyone. The police have not been defunded anywhere. I hate to admit loss and defeat, but that we were at least round one, right? We, we, we didn't win that fight. That is not what is happening here. And so some of it is, is we've got to be talking to our people and helping them understand that what we're talking about when we say defund or what we're talking about when we say abolition now is taking the money that we've been putting into bloated police departments all across this country, redirecting that into things that actually keep people safe, that actually keep violence from happening in the first place. And those are things, according to the data and the logic, not just CAT, right? Housing, mental health support, living wage jobs, healthcare, quality education, whole healthy people do not hurt people. Traumatized, wounded, desperate people do. So let's go through this then. If we had lived in a world where all of these important things were resourced at the time when you experienced what you experienced, what could your life, uh, what, could, what, what could your trajectory have been? Um, say your then husband called the police um, or you yourself experiencing violence are thinking about how you escape it. What would you rather have at your disposal and your availability instead of the police and 911? Well, I'd like to have, you know, what we've been able to create here in Oakland and Sacramento, mental health first, right? Where you can dial a non-911 number, you get a caring, trained volunteer on the other end of that line that's going to help you create a participant determined um, pathway to your health and your safety. If dispatch is, is necessary, it's not a badge and a gun that's dispatched. It's counselors, it's uh, EMTs or nurses that can make, you know, address um, medical uh, 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 concerns that, that may be present. It's funding for safe houses, right? Because I actually did need to leave, but where was I going to go, right? We need funding for safe houses. And we need counseling that addresses the whole family, both the cause of harm and the harm, including the children. And that's what I would have wanted to walk into instead of the nightmare that was a DA determined to prosecute, right? And months of fear and terror that actually just empowered my cause of harm to harm me more. You were the victim in that case and you were the one who was arrested. I was arrested. Um, I'm, I tried to meet with the DA, who I remember very clearly as this very red-faced, angry man who got joy, it seemed, out of the fact that he was going to prosecute me. And I, now, I want to let folks know, I was 18 when I was going to this. So you can imagine how terrified I was. I'm the one that had to go to court um, you know, and sit through those proceedings. It feels weird to say I was lucky, but my uh, my my abuser, uh, he still was trying to get me to come home. And so he actually told the truth on the stand, but far too often that that's absolutely not the case. So my case got dismissed. I mean, it just so happened that that was a judge that had also been working closely with my mother. So he had a little bit of analysis, but, but that's not what happened. And what we see is that there are thousands of women that are locked behind bars, right? Because the state responded to them being abused. Mm -hmm. So women are, you know, victims in general and survivors of domestic violence in our current system get re-victimized or become retargeted by either the same or even a different kind of violence, layer upon layer of it, and, and basically risk um, further harm instead of being able to have access to a system that reduces the harm. 
But it's not rocket science. What you were saying sounds like a very reasonable thing. And yet in city after city, we're seeing money being taken away from these resources that, uh, that, that survivors of domestic violence need, and instead just being put toward policing. How are we allowing this? 50 years, 40, 50 years, right, of this failed experiment of, of, of giving all the money to law enforcement. And how are we allowing it across the board? What will it take? And, and, and part of it is most of America, right, most of the world, but let's just stick to America for now, has been lulled into this idea. And it's backed up with what we call copaganda. It's backed up by city budgets. It's backed up by the, the, the BS that you see police associations put out that police keep us safe. And most of us can't even imagine, right? A world without law enforcement and the amount of energy and effort it takes for an organizer to have those one-by-one -one conversations, which that along with the creation of, of models that can be replicated is gonna be what it's gonna take. I am heartened though. Um, that these conversations are happening. Because the other thing that Biden said, not that I give him props for very much, very often, he he did say, and I almost bowled over, right, that when cops are, are responding to um, DV, they need a psychologist, right? I think we are seeing a sea change that if we're smart as organizers, we can exploit to create um, a watershed moment where folks are understanding that badges and guns are not what we need to respond to community crisis. It is trained, caring, compassionate community members. Uh, what are some of the ways in which you can counteract this notion of uh, 911 is the thing to do when someone is in trouble? Because for those communities that are over-policed, that uh, have personal experience with being re-victimized, um, you know, they might say, well, I, I, I feel like I have no choice or no opportunity, nowhere to turn to if um, if I'm either witnessing violence or being victimized by violence. You know, someone comes and breaks into your home um, and you're terrified of calling the cops. What are the options that you have? And, and then this isn't an all or nothing thing, right? Like when people are saying we need to abolish the police, it's not that we tear everything down on day one and then on day two expect everything to be beautiful. There's a transition that you hope for, right? Moving money away until there are no more police. Yeah, I mean, people, when they, they talk about abolition, that's all they think about, Sonali, right? Is just the tearing down. Mm. Abolition is about building. Right? It is about building um, equitable, just and humane systems that will work for everyone. Um, it was one of the fights that I used to have with folks here that when they would say, you know, never call the police ever. And I'm like, well, who's going to come then? Right? So when my seven-year-old neighbor is watching someone be gunned down in broad daylight mm. um, out front of her house, are you coming? Because if you're not coming, then you should hush. And those are often people that don't look like me. Um, and that also, had me take myself and my organization right to task because if that is the world that we want then we we are responsible organizing is what gets the goods we are responsible for creating these replicable models and we need to stop begging the state for the money the resources etc to create these models right mutual aid is a pathway to being able to create these models that then the people can see because what we've seen here is that once the mh first was available and that once folks saw that it could actually work, that that is the that becomes the preference, and we need to replicate that in city after city. And yeah, it's a low, long climb, but that's the only way that we are going to get there. The other thing I'll say that we've been really focused on is communications. We've got to be talking to people and not the people that agree with us. 
we have to figure out how to talk to folks that maybe aren't exposed to left-wing politics, maybe don't consider themselves radicals, radical is rational, maybe aren't liberals, right? Or are liberals, actually, that's sort of the sweet spot. How do we talk to them? And how do we use data, logic, and lived experience to shift it? Because appealing to someone's common sense along with their heartstrings, we found as an organizing strategy has been the most effective. So tell me what you've achieved in Oakland uh, through your work with the Anti-Police Terror Project um, and, and what more needs to be done, how you envision that work uh, moving forward. Yeah, so we're, you know, we've taken issue, we're taking an issue area at a time. So for us, I just want to say it goes, this goes back eight years. So the the current iteration, I mean, people have been talking about divest, invest for a long time, but defund, that, that terminology was given, we gave birth to that here in Oakland eight years ago. And that was about, right, taking money away from law enforcement and investing it in things that were actually going to keep communities safe. And we were laughed out of rooms. Um, for a really long time, <laughs> even by folks that we considered on our side. Um, but what we've managed to do is we created a reimagining public safety process here that they're going to have to address even in this next budget cycle, despite attempts by the uh, prior mayoral administration and, and some of the folks on city council to take it. We've been able to impact the public debate. We've built deep relationships with community. Uh, we launched Mental Health First, both here in Sacramento. We remain the only non-911 response to mental health crisis in the area. When the city did what the state often does, when they see the people building something that works and decided to have a city-run model, we partnered with labor. We partnered with formerly you know, organizations that work with formerly incarcerated folks. We um, pushed for there to be a community advisory board. We pushed for it to be folks that are impacted to be able to be get those living wage jobs. And we, we stuck our nose in their business and have forced it to be communication through what the city is doing and also what is happening on the grassroots. Um, primarily, we were responding to mental health crisis. We just released our guide for intimate partner violence uh, after three years of work, and we're going to be building a local model to respond to intimate partner violence without the carceral state. Um, next is substance abuse while fighting um, at the city council level for a budget that invests in things like violence interrupters. That's not the work that we do, but we know that we've got comrades on the ground that we work with every day that are from the hoods where violence is happening, that those are the people that community responds to. Those are the folks that can stop the violence before it occurs in the first place. And, and never stopping beating the drum, right? This is not um, all of a sudden we, we saw a spike in violence. This is, there's an economic pandemic that came on the heels of the COVID-19 pandemic, which people rang the alarm bell um, in, in every city across this country that folks ignored. And if we want it to stop, we've got to address basic needs that everybody should have anyway. You are, um, Kat, you're in Oakland, California, where uh, last week uh, your community lost uh, an activist who was also a baker, Oakland's most popular baker, Jen Angel, who ran Angel Cakes. She was a friend of mine as well. Um, uh, she was a victim of a horrific, violent uh, robbery. And the message that her um, community and her her close-knit family and friends put out was that um sh that they didn't if the, if there was an arrest made in in her case it was to pursue all available alternatives to traditional prosecution such as restorative justice because those were her values and they felt that those were her values and i'm wondering if you have any thoughts on on that first of all just deep condolences to to folks that had um personal relationships with with jen angel um i'm very close to a lot of folks that were her immediate uh community uh, this is a great loss uh, for, for Oakland and beyond. 
Um, I have been trying to do my job, and this is a commitment I made to several folks that, that asked directly, right, to use my platforms to amplify um, their wishes and their desires. We do have a district attorney, um, a new district attorney in office um, that is looking at what alternatives could be to the carceral state. Um, it is shameful to see some of the nasty, vile things that people are saying in response. Um, to, to what the family is asking for. I've been trying to be real careful and not, you know, speak out of turn. I will just say that um, whoever committed the, these horrific acts um, more than likely comes from a background where they didn't have the resources necessary to build successful, thriving lives. Um, they they probably are coming from a background that was full of violence and trauma and pain and throwing them into the most violent institutions, you know, one of the most violent institutions known to man and then spitting them back out in a few years because they will come home. Spitting them back out in a few years um, with no resources or supports is exactly how we keep violence in our communities. And so- And it wouldn't bring Jen back. And it would never bring Jen back. And that is- that is the biggest point that abolitionists um, that we often make, right? Like even that's how I became an abolitionist when I was thinking about my own sexual assault, which had prevented me from saying I was an abolitionist for so long mm -hmm. until I realized that the healing I was looking for had nothing to do with my cause of harm sitting in a cage. Mm -hmm. I wish that he had been a whole enough person to not have harmed me in the first place. So how do we do that? Kat, where can people find out more about the work that you do? Um, I didn't even mention uh, or just barely mention the fact that you're also a performer. And I know you're very, you're a multi-talented, um, multifaceted woman. Uh, throw out anything out there for, uh, in terms of websites or announcements you'd like to make that you'd love for our audience to know about. Sure. So you can check me at catbrooks.org. That has sort of all my work in, in one place. I'm on Twitter at Kat's Commentary, Instagram, The Real Kat Brooks. Uh, I've got a production of my one woman show, Tasha, about the tasing murder of Natasha McKenna in Fairfax County Jail in 2015. That's opening in February and will be on tour shortly thereafter. And antipoliceterrorproject.org um, and all the APTP handles as we know to learn about the work. Thank you again, Kat. Good luck to you. Thank you so much, Sonali. My guest has been Kat Brooks. She is KPFA's host of Law and Disorder, a longtime performer, organizer, and activist, and co-founder and executive director of the Anti-Police Terror Project. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, risingupwithsonali.com, by becoming a subscriber. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RU with Sonali.